So I want to talk about uh, what comes now. You know, we're back from the feast. And while we were there, we were in a, well, somewhat of a cocoon-type environment. Amen? And, and we were with people of like mind, and we rejoiced in the sermons and, and so forth. And now we've come back to the reality of the world in which we live in. And uh, we're bombarded by the, the, the news every day uh, and, and see the things that are going on in the geopolitical realm in this country and abroad that uh, can cause us some aggravation. Is that, a, is that an appropriate and accurate way to describe it? Aggravation yeah, and trepidation about all the things that we see going on. You know. And so it, the, the question is begged. What, what must God's church do? What, what, should we, what should we be doing? What, are, what should be the focus of our preaching? Should we, in light of the fact that we're such a small little group and the world is against us, should we just, shouldn't we just huddle together and hunker down and feed each other nice, warm, fuzzy, congregational messages about Christian living? Uh... Now, having asked that question, let me, let me set the record straight. Sermons about Christian living are of paramount importance to God's people, you know. It wasn't for naught that Christ told Peter to feed my flock, you know. And we can extrapolate that to all of the apostles and to us as well. We must feed the flock. You know. So Christian sermons on, you know, how to raise your kids and how to have a good marriage and all those kinds of things are vitally important to us. It's part of our feeding as a congregation, yes. Hmm. But our preaching must always include the concept of evangelization. As a matter of fact, first and foremost, above all else, that must be the focus of God's church. That was the focus in the beginning, and those are the instructions that were given to us by Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're very familiar with this scenario here in Matthew chapter 28. We have a similar uh, descriptive scenario in the first chapter of the book of Acts. It's uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ was uh, uh, giving instructions uh, immediately prior to his departure into heaven, his ascension into heaven. And uh, I want to break into the text here of Matthew chapter 28 at verse uh, 18. The Lord Jesus came and spake unto them, that is, those who had followed him out there, the faithful few who had followed him out there, who uh, watched him actually ascend into heaven, And the Lord Jesus spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And I want to comment on on that concept of power because the word here is exosia, which is usually translated simply as authority. But in the context in which Christ is using it here and the implications of what he is saying, we need to understand about how inclusive exosia can be. And in this context really must be understood because exosia really covers all of the different New Testament words that we use for power. And the Lord is telling us that all the power, all the authority, 
it's, it's all wrapped up in him. And in the, in the uh, New Testament, we have a number of words that are translated as power. Most of the time you see the word power, it is either exosia or dunamis. But there are six other uses of the word power. And I wanted to stress this to you because we must understand it that it is all inclusive in the power vested in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Godhead resides in him in total, in bodily, in total. And, and so I wanted to share this with you. Power is dunatos. Power is dunamis. Power is exosia. Power is exiadzo. Power is iskus. Power is arche. Power is megaliates. And power is kratos. That's all the uses of power. That's power in every possible application. And the Lord Jesus Christ has that. That's his authority. All power in heaven and in earth is vested in him. He's the boss. He's the curio, the word Lord. It's curio, and it literally means owner. He owns the church. He has purchased the church with his own body and blood and death. And so it's important that we understand that. I'm stressing that because the Lord wants us to understand here that he empowers us with all the power in heaven and earth to go out and execute the commission that he gave to us. Let me continue. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, verse 19, go ye therefore, since all the power is mine, I'm giving you a command. (laughs) Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now let me comment. That's not... That should not be seen or construed as a validation of inomine patris et spiritu sancti. Amen. You know, it's, it's not a validation that the Catholic Church uses. And th- these words are not spurious in that respect. And we understand that the word in here is actually EIS, which means into. And so we can understand this in the proper context. We are being baptized or baptizing people into the name, into the un-um-ah, that is the word, and it means to be baptized into the persona, into the authority, into the name indeed, but into every aspect of who and what God is, inclusive of his Holy Spirit. That's the way we must understand this. The richness and expression in the Greek language is something that I covet and cherish. I wish I had more fluency in it. And I thank my friend George for the help he's given me over the years. But it's very important that we understand it in the proper context. We are baptizing people, or supposed to baptize people, into the Holy Spirit family of God, Father and Son. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Well, what did the Lord Jesus Christ teach us? Well, he taught us uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He taught us the, the Beatitudes. You know, he, he taught us all of the parables that he gave us. He taught us by virtue of his example of being a, a loving, forgiving, compassionate person. But I want to draw your attention to something. He is God the Word, is he not? While he was here, he was God the Word incarnate. He is, in fact, the Creator. He is the spokesperson. He is the Logos. He is the Speaker. It isn't for naught that he's identified in the pages of his word as the speaker. He is, in fact, the revealer, not the concealer. 
He came and revealed the Father. He came and revealed the plan of salvation. He came and revealed the correct understanding of the Torah. It's fulfilled in him. He is the author of it. It was him who met Moses up there on the mountain. It was him who wrote with his finger, supernaturally, by a divine act of fiat, into the stone. It is God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of everything in this book from cover to cover. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, understanding that, Go and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Everything that he has taught us in his word, all inclusive. That's what we are to teach. And we we summarize that in many respects by the, the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ did it. The gospel of the kingdom. When he began his ministry, what are we told? He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. From cover to cover, that is a primary story thread and theme, to preach the kingdom of God. Everything attaches to that. Everything is ancillary to that. Everything attaches to that one way or another. His reason for being here, his his death on the cross, everything attaches to to the goal of God our Father in heaven, in the establishment of his kingdom, which will be the aegis by which his family will grow. Entrance into the very family of God. And all of the preaching attaches to that conceptually, one way or another. It all attaches. And we are to preach the whole story. I'm phrasing it that way because the story includes what? Eschatology. You know what eschatology is? The study of the end time. It literally means the study, the prophetic study of the end time. The study of those prophecies dealing with the end time. More than one-third of the Bible. Years ago it was preached that one-third of your Bible is prophecy. Well, that was correct, except it was said a little little too mildly. Actually, it's more than a third. More than a third of the Bible is prophecy. There are 30 specific prophecies in the Bible that lay out a, a, another important story thread for us, which is necessary to the establishment of that kingdom. And that story thread is the soon coming day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, 30 prophecies, and about a dozen more that attach to those 30 in one way or another, make reference to it one way or another. Peter, Paul, James, John, and the Lord himself, all of them, James, everybody, every author in the New Testament was prophetic at some point. Paul made specific prophecies, as did Peter. The Bible is full of prophecy. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the revelator of prophecy. He is that spirit of prophecy. And a third of God's word, more than a third of God's word, is indeed prophecy. And we have an obligation, I believe, to include that in our preaching. And that, of course, then goes to the concept of evangelization, of going out into the world to fulfill the commission, to do what Christ said when he said, occupy until I come, and to preach the word. So that's, that's something that I want, I want God's church to understand, that our message will not be well received. And they don't want to hear what we have to say because it's so contrary 
to the paradigm of traditional Christianity. Amen? I see people shaking their head. Yes. It is, it is so different. It is so contrary. It doesn't fit that paradigm. And when they hear it, oh, they want to gnash their teeth and stop their ears. Seems like I read something like that in the Bible about that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop, that we should stop, rather, uh, preaching God's word. Even though they don't want to hear it, we are obliged to preach it because we know it. <laughs> we know what it is. <laughs> We're responsible for what we know. Out of the darkness and confusion of traditional Christianity and, and, the, and the web of lies that Satan the devil has managed to spin and, and inflict upon the human race for 6,000 years, out of that darkness and confusion, God has shined a bright light, so bright that it got to you and to you and to you and to you and to me individually and turned us on in such a way that we could have actually absorbed the truth. And there's precious few of us in this world who have seen that light and who have received that light. It was God's prerogative, His choice. Doesn't have to make sense to you or me why He chose you or me, but He has. And we know things. And what we know makes us responsible. We're responsible for what we know. I see things happening in my country that, that I can that I can relate or analogize to the concept of a house on fire and everybody's asleep and it's late at night. If your, if your neighbor's house on fire, would you beat on the door and say, wake up! The focus of our preaching must be what we see over here in Isaiah 58. Just turn over there briefly with me in Isaiah chapter 58. And I want to come back to... Uh, Matthew 28, but here in, Matt, in uh, Isaiah chapter 58, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, if you analyze Paul's preaching, if you analyze the preaching of James and John, everybody, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all, with the exception of John, they all ended up as martyrs. They lost their heads. They were sawn asunder. They were burned. They were stoned. They died preaching what was not politically correct at the time. Everything in the scripture at some point was contrary to the civil authority in the day in which it was written and said. Everything in here. When Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, nothing that he could have said would have been more politically incorrect in that environment. Amen? Yes. And so this idea of, well, let's not go near politics, that's bogus, that's wrong. The elders of God's church have a direct personal focus responsibility to speak out on the political corruption, the political mess in this country, because it actually reflects prophecies about um, Jacob in the end time. It's part of the scenario, and we're obliged to preach it. And those who say, leave, pro leave, leave politics alone. Don't talk about abortion, because that's a political issue. Don't talk about gay marriage, because that's a political issue. I want to puke when I hear that. 
Abortion is wrong. It's contrary to God's word. It's contrary to the very concept of life. Very, it's contrary to everything and every possible thing that we can know about God and about his desire to reproduce after his own kind. It is heinous. 60 million babies aborted. Thousands of them even after they were out of the womb. Gay marriage is wrong. It's contrary to the very definition of marriage that we see in God's word, wherein a man and a woman designed to fit together sexually represent the image that God gives us of that oneness, the two become one flesh. And I don't want to be too graphic, but gay marriages of either gender do not match that representation. And in fact, it is a perversion of their very concept of family and marriage. Here in Isaiah chapter 58, it says... Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Somehow, it seems to me that that's been translated into speak softly, be diplomatic, be careful not to offend, and don't get too loud. It says, cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. That, that's, that's beautiful King James language that means to let it out loud and clear. Yes. And that has been the mantra all the way through the Old Testament. And it is the mantra as we examine the preaching of Peter, Paul, James, and John, and the Lord himself in the New Testament. They didn't, they didn't mince words. And they weren't careful with the way that they spoke it. Now those instructions don't mean to, to dwell on ways to deliberately offend people. No, don't go out of our way to upset people, make them mad. But if you are in doctrinal error, if, you have, if, there's, if there's sin in your life, if you're contrary to God's word in thought, word, or deed, hearing the truth, it's going to cut you. The, the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. And if you're wrong... If you're contrary to God in any kind of way, whether you sit here on the Sabbath or out there in the world in traditional Christianity, the Word of God will cut you if it's preached correctly without taking away from it or adding to it, of course. So let's go back over to Matthew chapter 28. He says, Go. And teach all nations, baptizing them into the family of God in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And then I wanted to draw your attention to the le- this last part. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now we have other scripture that talks about him being with us congregationally and individually. But... The context here must be recognized and we must pay attention to it because the context here literally means 
I will be with you as you obey me and go out and do what I've just told you to do. As you go out into the world and evangelize and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, like I'm telling you to do, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. That's the context. We must always understand everything contextually, of course. What was said and why it was said and how it was said. So, very, very important indeed. Now, if you would, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 24. And I do have water. Thank you so very much. John, you put this up here. Thank you. On the Day of Atonement, I shocked everybody in Toledo because, uh, of course, we're fasting on the Day of Atonement. And I was speaking, and my throat, I, it, I just locked up. And I had to take a drink of water <laughs> to get lubricated, and it made everybody's eyes get real big, of course. But it was either, either take the drink or sit down. It was, you know, I didn't have a choice. Ah. <clears throat> God is pragmatic, and that would be a, a horse in a ditch, right? Okay. Matthew chapter 24. I want to draw your attention to uh, verse 14 of Matthew chapter 24. In verse 14 of Matthew chapter 24. <coughs> It says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. Again, context in regards to what has been said just before this and what will be said after it, all the way through this Olivet prophecy. The word this is significant here. This gospel. This aspect of the gospel is what's being referenced. This warning aspect, this witness aspect, this eschatology aspect of the gospel of the kingdom. That's what's being referenced here. This aspect of, of the gospel will be preached. The salvific efforts of Jesus Christ, the, the gospel message of the kingdom in regards to the salvific efforts of Jesus Christ has indeed been preached in every nation and every continent. Yes. But a warning must also be preached. The word witness here in verse 14 uh, can also be understood in the context of a warning. The word is marturion. Forgive my murdering the Greek language when I try to pronounce that. But the word, based on context, the way it's used, can be understood as, as a witness against and also as a warning. That you've, in other words, you've been, you've been told. You've been given a witness. This gospel, this aspect, this witness aspect, this warning aspect of the eschatology about the end of the world, per the, per the conversation that Christ is having here, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, for a marturion, for a, a witness and a warning, so that you've been told. God won't be held responsible. I told you so unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We have a responsibility to preach what we know. We've been given incredible insight prophetically, incredible insight 
in, into the, the Christological things that the Lord Jesus Christ reveals to us. And great insight about the kingdom and what it will be like. And great insight into the fact that God is reproducing after his own kind. We have great understanding and insight that has been given to us. And we can't sit down with it. We can't hunker down and not share it. We are obliged to preach it. We know how to preach it. We've got a lot of experience. We have the know-how. We have the talent. And we must indeed do it. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, over to Mark chapter 13. Now, having said all that, let me remind those of you who have some history in God's church that, unfortunately, just like so many in traditional Christendom, traditional Christendom for 2,000 years has been setting dates for the Lord's return. And, and going way out on limbs that eventually break off, you know, by their incorrect prophetic premise. And God's church, for some of us who have a, a long memory, I see a lot of young faces in here. I see a few old ones too. Well, I have to look in the mirror to see the oldest one, I think. But dates were set. Remember, we remember 1975 in prophecy, you know. We had very specific, I mean, detailed, specific prophecies from the podium about exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, who would do what, and all those kinds of things, you know. And it would all be over by 1975, you know. Those of us who go back well before that in terms of involvement with God's church. I think there must be people still walking away from the fact that 1975 didn't happen the way we said it would. Maybe I shouldn't say we. Somebody said it would be that way. But the fact is, the scriptures that say that we can't know the day or the hour, they didn't just suddenly appear after 1975. They've always been there, and yet somehow they got ignored. And I'm being facetious because... Somehow, for some reason, it seems that that the church drifts back into that kind of a mindset about setting dates, sometimes using headline theology to do it, you know, the the latest headline, you know. Well, we have to guard against that. We have to be careful. But we do have a very clear scenario sequence of what's going to happen. You know, Paul said we... We see through a a glass darkly. We've been looking through that glass with our nose pressed up against that glass. Looking through that dark glass for 2,000 years. And, And after looking in there so long, we're starting to see a lot of things very clear in light of prophecy and in light of the fact that God's church was given the authority and and the order to grow in grace and knowledge. Remember the conversation that Daniel had with Gabriel? In the 12th chapter there, Gabriel was, was talking and, and he gave this, this prophecy, 10, 10, 11, and 12. And, and Daniel wanted to understand, and he wanted to understand. That was his whole thing about understanding, you know. And Gabriel said, go your way, Daniel. It's, it's sealed up to the end time. And then he said something that I think we haven't correctly 
understood, perhaps. He said, people will be running to and fro, and knowledge will be increased. And, uh, well, people say, well, that's, you know, planes and trains and cars and boats and Internet, that's running to and fro. That's not what it's about. I've been running to and fro in God's church for 35 years, and so has Bill Watson, and so is everybody, every other elder in the church. We're running to and fro in ways now that have never happened before in human history. That's about us, and knowledge has increased. And, and the knowledge that Daniel wanted was about God's word, the understanding of the prophecies, the understanding of God's word. Knowledge about real estate or nuclear physics was not the, was not the subject. The subject is understanding God's word. We understand things that we didn't even 40 years ago. The church of God now has grown in grace and knowledge. We know more now than we ever did in the worldwide church of God. Oh, that shocks some people. We know things, and we are obliged to act upon them. Yes. But we must be careful to not fall into that habit of Setting days, setting hours. Here in Mark chapter 13. You know, the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24 has a counterpart in Mark 13 and in Luke 21. Here in Mark chapter 13. Let me break into the text at verse 31. Christ being quoted here. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth, literally, actually, positively and definitely, are going to pass away. But my words shall not pass away. Everything that has issued from the mouth of God, including the prophecies, were eternal in the moment that they were issued forth. But of that day and that hour knows no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. At least at the time that the Lord said this, and, and, and has that changed? Does he now know? We can only speculate. But when the Lord said this, he did not know. Yes. Only the Father knows. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants. <laughs> To his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house comes, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And I wanted to key in on those for two reasons. First of all, to warn us about setting dates. We can't know the specific, precise moment that he's going to return. And so we are, we are to watch. I've heard it portrayed that the, that, that the only watching that we really need to be concerned about is watching our, ourself, our own conduct. The, the spiritual mirror of God's word to, to watch my own conversion or lack thereof, you know. And that's what we're supposed to watch. Watch how we're doing, watch our piety or lack of it. Watch our devotion or lack of it. To, to watch. Yeah. Well, I think that goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's a given that we, we are to watch 
our conduct and, and, to, and to watch, to analyze ourselves, to even ask God to, to search me and analyze me. Yeah. So, so watching in that context is certainly appropriate. Yeah. But the Olivet Prophecy is not really talking about watching that. The Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24 Mark 13 and Luke 21 is very pointed, very specific, and the Lord Jesus Christ gives us very specific benchmarks to watch, and events in the geopolitical realm, and events in nature to watch, things to watch. And when you see these things, then you know that the time is getting close. We won't know the precise moment, but we will know that it's about to happen. Because of prophecy, if we preach it, we will know, and our people will know, that it's about to happen. We can be very precise, very, very close, and we can enumerate the prophecies as they are fulfilled, and we'll be able to say, at this point, he could come literally at any moment, because it's been fulfilled. We see it. We have the record, and it has happened. And there will be a moment in time, an hour and a day in time, when he is indeed coming and we'll see him. Yes. And we're obliged to preach that with all the power and authority that he gives us, inclusive of all the things that traditional Christianity doesn't necessarily want to hear. Turn with me in your Bibles over to 1 Thessalonians. I was going to stop, but let me, let me turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. And this is significant, of course, most significant, because the verses immediately prior to this in chapter 4 include the scenario of the Lord's literal literal return there, verses uh, 13 through 18. And now here in chapter 5. Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Well, peace and safety is something that we're going to hear uh, at some point in the political spectrum and in in uh, in the news media and in the papers and so forth. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And the significance of this is travail upon a woman with child. That goes right back to the Olivet Prophecy, the the trepidation, the the way it's described there, the the word that is used in the Olivet Prophecy, literally is a reference to to labor pains that a woman, woman would experience as travail with a, as a woman with a child. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. No, we know things, as I have endeavored here to, to explain to you and bring to your attention. We know things, and we know what we know. And because of that, we can be very pointed and very close about 
when he's going to return. Not the day, not the hour, not to set dates. You are all the children of light, the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. Let us not be lulled into sleep, as do others. But let us watch and be sober. Let us be of a sober mind. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. And that, that, that picture there, that metaphor, is, 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 is accurate. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, consequently, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. And like I said, I was going to sit down, but now I'm on a roll, so I'm not going to sit down. Wait a minute. Turn with me in your Bibles over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. The words of Paul here to 2 Timothy are so, is so poignant, and, and they, they have a galvanizing effect, and they are most appropriate. Breaking into the text here at chapter 4, Paul has just told Timothy and told us that all Scripture is God-inspired. And when he said that, of course, he's referencing the only Scripture that existed at the time that he said that which was the Old Testament, the Torah, and the prophets, and the poetry. That's all that existed. The New Testament did not yet exist. The New Testament, as as we have it, was still 200 years away before it was all coalesced and so-called canonized. So the only scripture, the only holy writings that Paul or any of them knew about is the Old Testament when he said that. This is important that we understand that because that validates where we build Scripture. It validates where we can correct ourselves. It validates the fact that Matthew 5.17 means what it means. I did not come to do away with the Torah. I came to, to explain it for you. I came to fill it full for you. Yes. And he says, let me just back up. Let me go all the way back to verse 12. In chapter 4, or chapter 3. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Shall suffer dioko. That means difficulties, hardships, trials, tribulations. It won't be easy, in other words. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deception is out there. It's ramping up. But continue you in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. And Paul is referencing himself. He's also referencing Eunice and Lois. But he's primarily referencing the Word of God. Verse 15. That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That means everything necessary for salvation in Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament. The New Testament has been produced as a compendium to the Old. 
God has been gracious in that he gave us the New Testament so that we can properly understand the Old and get the insight of Jesus Christ through the New Testament. But it's in those scriptures that he knew from a child, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all the scripture that existed at that time is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In other words, Paul is saying everything is there in the Old Testament to make one truly furnished, perfect unto all good works. We, are, we know that. We know how to preach it. Therefore, chapter 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and had his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Be constant in preaching the word. Instant, out of season, instant, in season. Reprove. If it's wrong, prove it. Reprove it. Rebuke. If it's wrong, say so. Rebuke it. Exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Don't ever quit. Have the patience to keep going with doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall eat to themselves teachers, having itching ears, because their, their ears are itching for warm, smooth, fuzzy, feel-good stuff. They will heap teachers that will give them that. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch you in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and make full proof of thy ministry. And so, brethren, I wanted to include that, and I'm going to close with that. That's what God's church must continue to do. It won't be well received, but some will receive it just like you did. God be with you.